Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me, per usual. How you doing, Darcy? Hey, I'm doing all right. How about you? Staying warm and dry and safe. Uh, yes, um, hopefully we don't lose power like we did in the middle of our last recording. <laughs> yeah, that was bonkers. I was yeah. like, Darcy? Darcy? <laughs> ah, I just see the whole uh, Wizard of Oz thing playing uh, yeah. out. And you even have a dog, too. So I do have a dog. She is sleeping on the couch. We had to shelter in the basement downstairs for a little bit, and she did not care for that. But she is not a Toto. <laughs> she's, she, she's a big girl. <laughs> she's, she's a big girl, but she's she's afraid of everything. Yeah. Well, hopefully you stay warm and safe and dry. Yeah. Again, like I said before, it's snowing out here, so good times. Ugh. <laughs> supposed to snow for a good portion of the day, so hopefully it'll stop soon. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So this is a week of interesting articles, and I've got some good ones for you. All right. So remember the case of the Wisconsin guy who killed his parents and then kind of cut their bodies up? Yes. Well, there was an update on him, and he was found guilty. Chandler Halderson okay. was the name of this gentleman. It's basically not very far from where I live now. Oh. But he was found guilty of the murder and dismemberments of his parents. This happened last summer, which is just crazy. They deliberated for about two hours, and the jury found 23-year-old Halderson guilty of killing, cutting up, and hiding the remains of Bart and Krista Halderson, as well as lying to law enforcement when when he initially claimed his parents were missing after they left the Windsor house the family shared for the 4th of July weekend trip in northern Wisconsin and never returned. Evidently, this guy showed no reaction when the verdict was read. They convicted him of two counts each of first-degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse, hiding a corpse, and falsifying information about a missing person. Mm. So, evidently, these charges carry a mandatory life sentence. Not a big surprise. Mm -hmm. And attorneys will be able to argue whether Chandler can ever be eligible for parole at a sentencing hearing that is scheduled for next month. So, that is pretty much the end of that. My estimation just from hearing about cases like this so many times before he ain't gonna get parole yeah he's donezo he'll be in prison for the rest of his life as he should be i think anybody that kills their parents is like super super bonkers yeah to kill the people that brought you into this world just seems like the most vicious kind of a heinous thing to do but yeah anyway that's the update for that next Here's an interesting one. The FBI indicts 23 people accused of earning a million dollars in more than a dozen pre-planned car accidents. What? Which I thought was very interesting. The Federal Bureau of Investigation indicted 23 people on more than 100 counts in connection to about 14 pre-arranged car accidents that earned them an estimated million dollars in insurance claims. I've heard of this before. I have two, like, but I always kind of thought it was an urban legend. No, this is legit real, and they're cracking down on it. These defendants face 138 counts in total, according to the press release from the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Washington. If convicted, they could spend up to 55 years in prison, 20 years for conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud, an additional 20 years for conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and 10 years for conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud. Hmm. And then five years for making false statements to the FBI. So there was an 81-page indictment passed out on this, and it was filed last month. 
where the defendants were accused of planning collisions, orchestrating them mostly on secluded roads where only the accused defendants could be witnesses to the crash. And then they made these fraudulent insurance claims, mm. fabricating their injuries between July 4th, 2017 and September 25th, 2020. Get this. In some instances, there were no drivers or passengers in at least one of the cars. What? They used a weighted object to ensure the car's airbag deployed, and hammers oh. were used to break the windows of the vehicles. The defendants, that 23 of them, ranged in age from 20 to 51 and hail from Washington, California, Michigan, Nevada, and then one of them was from British Columbia, Canada. Oh my gosh. Four of the people involved in these charges haven't been arrested yet and are currently considered fugitives. Attorney Alexander H. Fuqua represents four of the 23 individuals in this case and told Insider Magazine in an email that he believes the government's case is overreaching. Yeah, right. Hmm. Don't think so. From what's been shared with me, the evidence against the people I've represented mainly rely on hearsay statements with scant direct evidence. The Department of Justice did not immediately respond to insiders' requests for comment. Attorneys representing the other 19 defendants were not immediately available to respond to insiders' emails. So you've heard lots of stories about this as kind of a urban legend, right? Yes. Like, I had a... Well, I, have he I had heard the thing of, like a car will get in front of you and then a car will get really close right behind you and like the car in front stops and like causes you to hit them and then like they, like you're boxed in. Yeah. Like that's what I've heard. But I've never actually heard of that really happening. I've just kind of always heard of it as an urban legend. I feel like I've seen some kind of a, um, like a 2020 special about mm -hmm. it. Cause it didn't seem new to me. I feel like I've heard it before. Okay. Um, but it's interesting that they're cracking down on it now. Yeah. Um, and I hope they do. I hope they prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law because people like those individuals raise the prices of insurance for everyone. Yes, exactly. Um, next story. I'm ready if you are. This is yours. This yeah. is the one about the woman with the DNA, the rape DNA. Yes. Okay, so let's just talk about it then. So evidently this woman who had a rape case, she was a victim mm -hmm. of a rape case and had DNA taken during this case was later convicted of a crime using the DNA from the earlier rape case. Yes. Am I right on this? That is correct. Um, okay. This is, I'm going to find a different article. This is a USA Today article. So the San Francisco district attorney's stunning disclosure that California crime labs are using DNA from sexual assault survivors to investigate unrelated crimes shocked prosecutors nationwide and advocates say the practice could affect victims' willingness to come forward. Which is absolutely, I mean, there's already an issue with victims' willingness to come forward in these situations and then to yeah, find out that- I believe they call that a chilling effect. Yes. So the district attorney said he became aware of the opaque practice last week after prosecutors found a report among hundreds of pages of evidence in the case against a woman recently charged with a felony property crime property crime yeah not a violent crime the papers right. referred to a dna sample collected from the woman during a 2016 rape investigation so my question about this is why isn't that protected by hipaa maybe it seems like it should be it's possible they got a subpoena but i'm con i mean i don't know what judge like i want to know why a judge would approve that that seems bonkers to me yes that they should be that they would be allowed to do that yes um so the district attorney's office dropped charges in the case, citing a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So the 
DA in San Francisco says, no, this violates her Fourth Amendment right for improper search and seizure, and they drop the charges on this. Um, yeah. Basically because that's the only way they could link her to the crimes. So, like, if they had any other way to do it, they would have. I understand if they use that in conjunction with other evidence, but if it's the sole source, yeah. and I think we've kind of had this discussion as far as being able to use um, DNA as well. Um, in case, We had a discussion about this not too long ago where they were pulling... So this very specifically kind of similarly happened with BTK. This is how they were able to confirm BTK's DNA because they took DNA from his daughter's pap smear at the Wichita State University Medical Center. Yeah. So they got her medical records from a subpoena and they were able to match her DNA to the familial DNA from the DNA, but they but they had to identify him as a suspect first. They had other reasons yeah. to look at him. And, no, there was another case we talked about too, where they used kind of subterfuge to obtain DNA um, and then used it in the case. I don't remember. And then we had a whole discussion about you know not telling the truth when you're gaining DNA evidence from somebody when you're obtaining when you're telling them it's for something else right. and you're actually using it to charge them with a crime right whether they should be allowed to do that or not and they're using that as the sole source right. of evidence to convict someone of a, of a dangerous See, crime those are kind of two different things in my opinion because on the one hand they like I don't think that you should be able to like lie to somebody to collect their DNA but at the same time if that person voluntarily gives you their DNA that is that kind of sets you free from any kind of legal response, like liability of like. I mean, the police can lie. They can they lie can. when they're questioning you. Exactly. They can lie at any point during this process. So why shouldn't they, they be able to lie when they obtain DNA evidence? Yes, and and that is to me different because if they say we're just looking at this blah 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 for some other other reason completely unrelated to everything, and you voluntarily give them a sample. That's the moment yeah. to me that it changes from surreptitiously getting their DNA, which is what yeah. they did in this case. It just seems as though when you're taking away somebody's liberty, freedom, right to exist within free society, and to, you should have to and have to more get than medical that. assistance. Yeah, like so. Uh, in a statement on uh, Monday, I think this came out this week. The district attorney denounced and called for an end to the practice, condemning it as legally and ethically wrong. Quote, I am disturbed that victims who have ha have the courage to undergo an invasive examination to help identify their perpetrators are being treated like criminals rather than supported as crime victims. San Francisco yeah. Police Chief Bill Scott said his department is investigating, and if he finds his department is using victims' DNA to investigate other crimes, he is committed to ending the practice. So that is the update on the story. The original story was a link that was sent to me from my friend Hannah that just set, basically said they used the DNA from a rape kit to identify her for a property crime. So at least they're trying to right this wrong because they're all yeah. in agreement that, it's, that this is completely wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Um, it's shocking. Yeah. Um, here's another interesting case that kind of talks about some precedents that's being set here. Woman convicted of businessman's 1987 murder to be released after proving domestic violence. Hmm. So we've kind of had conversations about this before, about, in particular, Sally and Richard Shallon. Okay. So we covered that case uh, March 22nd, 2020. It was episode number 69. And that was, um, she was eventually 
able to be freed on a murder charge after she could prove um, that he had kind of manipulated her and lied to her and abused her, but it wasn't heavy physical abuse. Okay. Because I think that oftentimes the courts look to see if the woman has been physically abused as sort of a mitigating factor when they're sentencing. Right. And whether they determine the woman can be um, eligible for parole, that can end up being a factor that plays into that. And so that particular case, they determined that he'd gaslighted her and he'd manipulated her and that that influenced her decision to kill him. They got back together. They broke They broke up. They got back together, and he had convinced her that he was going to be with her, and he was actually still cheating, and she found out about it, and she got so she was so devastated that she ended up killing him. Yeah. In any case, this is slightly different, okay? And let me explain how it's different. So this woman was convicted of the 1987 murder of a businessman. She's about to be released from prison after proving she was a victim of intimate partner violence, but it wasn't the businessman that abused her. Nancy Rich, 59, was handed a life sentence for the kidnapping and murder of Stephen Small of Kanaki, Illinois, according to CBS Illinois, so it's not too far from where I am. But the creation of a 2016 law allowed her to challenge her sentence, proving she was a victim of domestic violence. So oftentimes when they have this sort of an incident, it has to be proof that the person they killed right. was the abuser. But I do not believe that was the case in this particular story. Um, I don't... I did not knowingly participate in this crime that took the life of Stephen Small, Rish said on Tuesday. However, I do take responsibility for my actions. Rish's defense petitioned the courts in 2017, arguing that her then-boyfriend, Danny Edwards, threatened to kill her and her son if she didn't participate in the kidnapping scheme, according to the Chicago Tribune. Danny Edwards was sentenced to death for Small's murder before his punishment was commuted to Hmm. a life term. The appellate court ruled in Rish's favor when her attorney, Margaret Byrne, claimed that Edwards forced Rish to drive him to the crime scene without telling her why. The reason she followed his order to pick him up in the middle of the night at an odd location was that he had threatened to kill her eight-year-old son. He had a gun, and she believed he would do that. So Stephen Small was actually a pretty prominent figure in Illinois and the heir to a media fortune. He was the grandson of Len Small, who served as the Illinois governor from 1921 to 29. And this is according to the Chicago Sun-Times. Danny Edwards was a small-time drug dealer who plotted to kidnap Small before taking him to a rural area outside Chicago. He had hopes of collecting a million dollars in ransom from the Small family, so he knew who this guy was. Edwards then outfitted a 6 by 3 wooden box with an air pipe, and he buried this guy alive hoping to kind of hide him and keep him alive with this air tube while he got the ransom. But instead, while he was trying to contact the small family, this guy suffocated and died. Somehow the air hole became blocked, which just sounds horrifying. Yeah, because that's like not a thing that you should do. No. Um, Police actually used phone tracking devices and surveillance to capture Riss and Edwards the day of the murder, the day after the murder. Um... It's just terrific. I hold so much grief and sorrow for his family, she said, and his loved ones to this very day. My most sincere and deepest apology for the most regrettable mistake of my life. Defense attorney Byrne states, experts who agree the effects of domestic violence last a lifetime. Mm. She's a good person. She's moral. She's honest. She's decent. And this guy was a conniving drug dealer who was looking to make money quickly. The domestic abuse that she suffered through her life was very highly relevant. 
Kankakee County Associate Judge Brenda Claudio ordered that both of Rich's 1988 sentences, 70 years for the murder and 30 years for kidnapping, be served concurrently and reduced by 50%. So that's that's pretty significant. Right. She's going to be released later this year. So that, that essentially makes her eligible for parole now. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, the small family didn't object to Tuesday's ruling, according to the Daily Journal, and she will be on parole for about three years after her release. Wow. Crazy. That's big. I mean... The fact that they... So what does that mean moving forward? Because... That victims of domestic violence could potentially get their sentences commuted if they prove they were victims. That's like the case of... Um, who's the gal who was married to the gymnastics guy? Nicole Adamondo. She, okay. she shot Chris Grover, her husband, in self-defense. And she basically showed the court that she had medical... People had seen her injuries... She'd told other people about it, mm -hmm. and other people had noticed and witnessed different kind of symptoms that she was experiencing related, and bruises on her, right. and physical injuries, and so forth. So I think as long as there's somebody, even one person, to testify as a witness to this, then you can prove domestic violence. Gotcha. But I don't think it can be minor in order to meet the bar of being something that would be significant enough to mitigate a sentence. Yeah, it has to be significant. That was my question, because I understand, like, Obviously, this is a huge step forward and toward believing victims and survivors, but I also feel like by setting an actual line for the burden of proof, that like sometimes that may make it out of reach for some people. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think yeah. there's any one clear demarcation that's going to show somebody, oh, hey... This is, this is where the burden of proof is met. Okay, I got gotcha. It's going to be a judge listening to each specific case on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think it's positive in that it allows for deviation in sentencing if this right. woman has been abused. 100%. Because they're showing now that this abuse, regardless of how small we may think it may, is in, in kind of the, the person's life, is very significant right. in how they act, the behavior, and how they react. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sure. interesting stuff. And I believe uh, Nikki Adamondo got her sentence commuted as well. Okay. Or is eligible for parole now or something of that nature. Hers, well, it's obviously, it's a case I want to cover at some point in the show because it's really interesting as well. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Okay. Nikki Adamondo. Um, interesting stuff. Um, here's another one that I found that I... <laughs> got a kick out of. It says, Oregon woman was duped into thinking she was training to be a DEA agent for almost a year. What? <laughs> I mean, I hate to laugh at this, but it's like, I guess this woman in Oregon believes she was training to be a drug enforcement administration agent and realized that she'd been tricked for a year by a man pretending to be her supervisor. Robert Edward Golden, 41, is accused by Portland officials of impersonating a DEA special agent using false credentials to gain information from residents and installing red and blue emergency lighting in his car to navigate traffic. He also kept a tactical vest affixed with DEA police patches, two body armor plate carriers, handcuffs badges, and an AR-15 style rifle, which turned out to be a BB gun. Oh my God. All of this according to an affidavit from a DEA special agent. Authorities discovered and detained the pair February 1st, after a police sergeant noticed one of the vests in the open trunk of Golden's car and approached the pair. The officers asked Golden if he was a sworn federal agent, and Golden said that he and this trainee were both feds working in Portland. Golden then told the woman to show the officer her fake badge. 
<laughs> the pair were transferred that night to DEA investigators, and Golden then admitted the credentials were fake. This time he claimed he and the woman were into cosplay, and the equipment and badges uh, <laughs> provided them with protection. No. Golden said he had previously helped to break up a fight by shouting police and holding up his badge like an officer. According to affidavits, the unidentified trainee who wasn't charged told authorities that Golden had given her a DEA badge and a photo ID and said she'd been in training for a year while attending school for criminal justice. She said Golden had taken her on night surveillance ride-alongs. She said he'd also took her practice shooting and often mentioned four other supposed DEA agents by name. The DEA agent who filed the complaint said there weren't any agents in the force by those names and the agency doesn't provide ride-alongs. The complaint didn't mention Golden's possible motivation for tricking the woman into believing he, she was a DEA agent. If found guilty, Golden faces up to three years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. This is wild. Okay. There's so much to unpack You have here. questions. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, first of all, I, I have applied for federal jobs, not federal law enforcement agent jobs, but I... Even still, I don't think that they train you on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And she was a criminal justice major, so she's not dumb. And, well, I was gonna, that was going to be my part B is I don't think she was a good criminal justice student. <laughs> Probably not if she got scammed by like, that guy like a, that. A not year. only that. I don't mean to like make fun of her because this, like, this is just crazy. This is serious. That, like, how do you... But if you're going to be a DEA agent, there's a lot of freaking paperwork. Yeah. There's a lot. They don't just say, oh, hey, come ride along. We'll figure all no. that out later. They get it up yeah. front. Well, you usually have to, like, go to a law enforcement There's a criminal school. background check. There's, like, a whole ton of stuff. You have, you have to do freaking polygraph tests. Like, there's a lot involved. You meet other, like, students. Like, there's more. It's just, this is just crazy. But, again, you know, there are people, there are manipulators in society that are among us that get where they are because they're good at it. They don't get where they yeah. are because they're crappy at it. Yeah. So clearly this guy was good at what he was doing. Well, I don't, like, why? They said they didn't have any idea what his motivation was. Maybe he got some kind of thrill out of it. Maybe it turned him on. That has to be it. Some kind of some kind of psychopathic. I thought it was funny that he said they were into cosplay. It's like, it's all just a cosplay thing. I, it's probably one of those things where it's like, ooh, it's like a sex thing. I'm not going to ask any questions. Like, he just kind of thought they would react like that to it, maybe. Like the guy that liked getting into diapers and trying to recruit women to take care of him. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about that. That's so upsetting. Yeah. I think this was a similar thing. Like, he was getting some yeah. weird kick out of it. Yeah. Like, some kind of um, sexual gratification from fooling this woman. Oh, poor thing. I mean... It just seems bizarre that she wouldn't check into it and, and look into it a little bit more closely and that it would last for a year before she figured it out. A year. Well, she didn't figure it out. They were arrested. That's wild. That's <laughs> like, just wild to me that he could pull that off for that long. Like, and how long did he tell her this training program was supposed to last? Seriously. And she was completely in it. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in deep. And it's probably one of those situations where after a while she may have had questions, but she's like, you know what? Number one, I've already been in it. If it was fake, wouldn't it have shown up by now? And number two, I'm in deep. I might as well just keep going. Right? I don't. I don't know. Like, at what point do you think, like, because you typically graduate from a officer law enforcement <laughs> training school. Like, it's like, is this an internship? Like, like, what like, is going on? Yeah. And Maybe what was he, going like, on? Maybe told her she was deep undercover and, like, 
you can't tell anybody or something. And what was going on with her school? Because it says she was a, a student. Like, what was she telling them? Oh, hey, I'm, I'm doing this, or was it all secret? And oh, God, I don't know. And no one I said just... any. No one encouraged her to say anything or ask questions. It just it. I have a lot of There's questions so many about this. Questions. But I suppose you know, as this continues to make its way through the court system, there'll probably be more evidence coming out about it. But it just seems wild. And he's only going to get three years for that. Yeah, that's crazy. Like you would think, per- impersonating a federal officer would be a harsher penalty. I guess not. Well, um, we all learned something, didn't we? Yep, we certainly did. <laughs> ask questions, ask questions, yeah. and then ask more questions on Maybe top of those questions. Maybe do a Google search. Yeah, and then check on the names because yeah. you know there's some record of it somewhere. Um, next case: the victims of Vancouver's 1953 Babes in the Woods murders finally identified. Mm. And this is just so sad. It's just heartbreaking. 70 years after these two boys were found murdered in the woods, authorities in Canada say they finally identified the victims. Skeletal remains of two boys were discovered by a groundskeeper near Beaver Lake in Vancouver's Stanley Park in 1953. Gosh. Locals referred to them as Babes in the Woods murders, according to the Vancouver police. The children were bludgeoned in their heads with a hatchet which was found on the scene and then covered with a woman's coat and concealed under thick brush, which grew around their small bodies over time. Authorities believe the victims had been killed in 1948, but on Tuesday, Vancouver police formally announced they'd identified the children as brothers Derek and David D'Alton. They were six and seven. Mm. So just little guys. These murders have haunted generations of homicide investigators, and we are relieved to now give these children a name and to bring some closure to this horrific case, said Vancouver police. Although significant folklore has surrounded this case for years, we must not forget that these were real children who died a tragic and heartbreaking death. For decades, the children's remains had actually been displayed as an exhibit at the Vancouver Police Museum. What? Photos displayed with the children's skeletons provided visitors with a glimpse into the crime scene showing a lunchbox, a leather aviator's cap, and a woman's shoe that had been found near the victims. In the 90s, the boys' bones were finally cremated and scattered into the waters off Kitts Point. Last May, police announced they had found they had formed a partnership with Redgrave Research Forensic Services. It's a Massachusetts-based company specializing in genetic genealogy. Mm -hmm. So here we have another connection to that genetic genealogy. They use DNA samples collected from the boys' skulls, which it's just amazing. They had the foresight to pull that out before they cremated the bones. But the lab matched one of the samples to a maternal grandparent. These results led the company to create a family tree and connect the boys with relatives who'd already voluntarily submitted their DNA to private companies for genetic testing. We knew there were good odds of finding a living family member out there somewhere, said the detectives, but once we discovered the DNA match, we had a significant amount of work to do to locate family members, check school records, and confirm specific details about the victims so we could be absolutely certain about their identities. Earlier this month, investigators visited a distant relative of the boys who lives outside of Vancouver. And then according to CBC, that relative submitted their DNA for the sole purpose of finding out what really happened. Mm. So the story had been handed down to them that the boys had been removed from the residence by the ministry, mm. which is interesting, right? Um, for child abuse or something of that nature. Not ministry as in church, but the Canadian Ministry of Child Health and Welfare, I believe Were it is. Were they indigenous? I don't believe so. 
Oh, okay. Because I know there was a movement during that time to remove indigenous. No, and I'm going to kind of get into their, their background okay. a little bit more. Um, okay. This family member did their best to try to talk about the boys and get the story. The only response they got from the family was silence, though. The absence of the boys was never discussed when it actually happened. According huh. to the CBC, authorities claim they're looking into the validity of behind the theories the Children's Protection Services was involved with the family. Police confirmed with the outlet that the boys lived in poverty and were never reported missing. Thanks to the relatives' information, authorities believe the boys were descended from Russian immigrants who came to Canada at the turn of the 20th century which is just wild. Yeah. The family changed its name in the 50s after the boys disappeared. Police didn't reveal a suspect in the boys' death, but they believe the person who killed Derek and David was likely a close relative who died approximately 25 years ago. Journal huh. Journalists and law enforcement have long speculated that the children might have been killed by their own mother. Yeah. You always have to wonder when kids go missing and nobody seems to look for them. Right? But for now, those working the case are proud to give these boys their names. After seven decades as a cold case, we presume the person who killed Derek and David has already passed away. But at this stage in the investigation, it was never about seeing someone charged with these crimes. It was always about giving these boys a name and finally telling their story. I'm yeah. proud to be a part of the team that has done that, says the detective that was working on this case. Just sad. Wow. And no one knew to mourn them. I mean, it's just, ugh. It's amazing that after 70 years, this yeah. case was finally solved. Yeah. It just Incredible. goes to show, like, there's, if you, you know, believe and, and keep at it and have, and persevere and be tenacious about it, that these are going to be solved little by little. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me that DNA, enough DNA is saved from some of these early cases to still provide yeah. enough to get genetic genealogy from it. Yeah. So I think that we could chalk that one up as another success story. For genetic genealogy, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and then I want to talk about one last case, which I found particularly interesting in light of kind of social media and how popular it's become lately. Okay. But a child's TikTok stardom opens doors and then a gunman arrives is the <gasps> name of this one. I don't know if you saw this. Oh. This happened in Naples, Florida. Was this like a year ago, maybe? Um, early 2020. Yeah. Okay. I remember this. So Ava, or Ava, I don't know how you say her name, Marjorie, Marjorie downloaded the TikTok when she was 13. And at the height of the pandemic, lockdowns a year later had more than a million followers. Her fans, nearly three quarters of them male, watched her lip sync and dance to trending music on an account with the profile message, hey, I love you. Mm -hmm. In early 2020, Ava or Ava noticed that one fan, Eric Justin 111, was trying to get her attention in comments on TikTok. He messaged her in Snapchat and on Instagram and then turned up in an online game she played with her brothers. Ava responded to him a few times at first and said, because I used to reply to my fans like, hey, how was your day? Mm -hmm. So she was really casual about it. She wasn't trying to connect with him, but she was right. just being polite, presumably. Early July 10th, the fan, Eric Rohan, Justin, 18, of Ellicott City, Maryland, arrived with a shotgun at the Marjorie family home in Naples and blew the front door open. His weapon jammed. Ava's father, Rob Marjorie, a retired police lieutenant, chased him off but fell. Marjorie told Collier County Sheriff's officers that he returned to the house, retrieved his handgun, and stood guard at the front door, only to see the gunman return a short time later. Jesus. By sunrise, he lay dying, shot by Marjorie. So the father Whoa. shot this guy. Okay, this is not the story I was thinking of. 
What began as an enterprising teenager's lockdown venture has awakened a family of five to how online fame can fuel real-world violence. Yeah. In interviews with the New York Times, they spoke for the first time about an ordeal that illuminates the dark side of social media. TikTok's owner is a Beijing-based company, and many of us users emphasize friendships, innovative content, and creative collaboration enabled by the platform. But its enormous popularity among vulnerable underage people has also been linked to mental health problems, injuries, mm -hmm. and deaths. Mm -hmm. Today, Ava Marjorie remains on TikTok, where she's netting thousands of dollars in sponsorship deals and has attracted interest from Hollywood, including reality TV producers. Her Jeez. TikTok fame has brought sponsorship opportunities on Instagram, Snapchat, etc. Um, her creations, her contacts, her videos became such a big part of her that to take it away would have been hard, her father said. We chose what's best for our family, Ava's mother said. We know there's going to be two sides and some people won't understand. The Marjories moved to Florida in 2019 from Manalapan, New Jersey, lured by its warm climate, low taxes, and a quieter lifestyle. They settled into Naples, a staid, safe community of affluent retirees and growing families on the state's Gulf Coast. Rob, 51, was a former Jersey City police lieutenant, and Kim, the mother, 45, is an ultrasound technologist. Mm. The family rented a home off Raffia Preserve, a subdivision of tiny homes on curving streets. Ava is a go-getter, her father said. When classmates in New Jersey admired a sticker she designed from her laptop, she started selling them, eventually earning nearly $700. Wow. On TikTok, she's promoted a tooth-whitening product, emerging record artists, and NFL games. Wow. She has three TikTok accounts, and just she's making about $1,700 off just her name per month. Wow. Her venture surprised and intrigued her parents. Honestly, we had no idea of the extent that she was able to earn. Um, the dad has actually appeared in a couple of her videos, including one she made in the car while he was driving. Downloads of TikTok grew by 75% in 2020, making yeah. it the world's most downloaded app that year. Today, the platform has more than a billion average users per month. Jesus. It welcomes account holders as young as age 13. And in 2021, outflanked both Instagram and Snapchat and weekly usage youths ages 12 to 17. So youths like, like Ava have used it to entertain and spread positive messages. TikTok challenges have been cited as inspiring children to vandalize and threaten their schools, though, and follow starvation corpse bride diets mm -hmm. and asphyxiate themselves. Mm -hmm. Teen girls have also been repeatedly targeted by child predators TikTok spokespeople say TikTok is deeply invested in the safety and well-being of the community and added the platform uses tools to protect users under 16. In 2020, TikTok classified more than a third of its 49 million daily users in the U.S. as 14 or younger. Ava has two brothers, ages 17 and 11. She attended a sprawling public high school where much of the student life revolves around social media. In 2020, Ava noticed Justin angling for her attention on TikTok, and she learned that friends in New Jersey and Florida were selling him photos of her, <gasps> as well as her personal information, including her cell phone number. Oh, my God. Which this guy used to call and text her. In another instance, he logged onto a classmate's school account and did math homework in exchange for information about Ava. Oh, my gosh. I had to unfollow all my local friends and Jersey friends, Ava said, and everyone around me was like, oh, you're going to Hollywood on all of us, and you don't want to talk to us anymore, and you're selling my stuff. Yeah. But Ava's parents allowed her to sell Justin a couple of selfies that she'd already posted to Snapchat, which, wow. 
Really? Well, so this guy's stalking you. He's getting your number. He's and your parents are are contributing to that. I'm have I have to imagine that they allowed her to sell the pictures before the stalking uh, was known to them. She said, "I wasn't sending anything of my body. It was just pictures of my face." Yeah, which is what I assumed he was paying for. My whole thing is my pretty smile. That's my content. Justin paid about $300 for two photos via the Venmo digital wallet app. After that, he messaged Ava on Venmo with a breakdown of what he would pay for booty pics, quote unquote, and photos of her feet. Stuff that a 14-year-old should not be sending. Yeah. She blocked him on all of her accounts. In Venmo messages viewed by the Times, Justin pleaded with her to unblock him, sending $159.18, which seems so random. That's probably That's what he random. had left in his bank account. And then $100, and finally $368.50 with the message, sorry, this is all I have left. I'm broke. Jesus. So this girl's father said he texted Justin's cell phone, told him that Ava was a minor, and demanded that he stop contacting yeah. his daughter. At that point, Justin's efforts turned sinister. In a series of text messages that made their way to Ava, the Majuri family showed the Times that Justin asked one of Ava's male classmates whether he had access to a strap or a gun. Excuse me. Wow. And shared plans to assault her. I could just breach the door with a shotgun, I think, he said. When Ava learned of the threatening messages, she called the classmate who had received them. He confirmed he'd gotten them and forwarded others to her. Fearful, she showed her parents, and they researched Justin's identity and saw that he lived hundreds of miles away, and this was reassuring to them. They thought he was just one of those keyboard cowboys i sort of discredited him and that he could be a threat ava's bedroom was just inside the door that justin blasted open i wonder if he knew that or not jesus all i remember was that i heard it and felt it in my chest and i looked up and there's a hole in my door from the fragments she ran through a connecting bathroom to her brother's room clutching a blanket water bottle and her cell phone which for god's sake seriously jesus your cell phone well, I mean... And a water bottle? I don't know. Marjorie bolted from bed and ran, shouting into the foyer where, he sa- foyer where he said debris still floated in the air. Kim Marjorie, following, dialed 911 on her phone. Outside, a gangly teenager wearing what looked to be a blue Walmart worker's vest, protective earplugs, earplugs and safety glasses stood on the front lawn. He turned to escape and robbed Marjorie, sprinted forward, but fell, gashing his knee. The gunman paused, struggling to clear his jammed weapon, and then ran away. So Ava's dad retrieved a handgun and was standing at the front door, waiting for the police when Justin returned. Marjorie said he ordered the teenager to drop the shotgun. When he pointed it at him, mm. the dad just fired. The three children retru- retreated to their parents' bedroom in the rear of the house, and Ava's older brother, Evan, turned to her in panic and fury. This is all your fault, he said. Well, the subject was most likely a stalker that resulted from her daughter's extensive social media involvement. Since her daughter's involvement with social media, multiple subjects have attempted to ascertain her family's address in the past. The Collier County Sheriff's Office told local media at the time that a man had been shot and killed by the resident of a home in Raffia Preserve after firing a gun in the home. The Madri said police told him Justin was carrying two cell phones that contained thousands of photographs of Ava and hundreds of hours of her videos. Oh my god. This remains an active investigation and there are no updates, say the police. The gunman's identity was confirmed by his father. His father is a software engineer who was divorced from Justin's mother. 
said that before the divorce, the family had lived in the U.S. and they'd moved to Dominic's native India. So this is an Indian kid. Hmm. But when his parents split up, Justin chose to move back to the U.S. with his mother, recalling their move to be about 2015. Dominic said that when he spoke with investigators, he recalled his son as a good student who did well in math. He was a nice kid. I'm at a loss for words. I don't know what went bad with him. He made a bad choice. After the shooting, the Madri's reeling moved in with friends a few days later. The mother received an invitation from a would-be agent for Ava to revisit Los Angeles and meet with other influencers at red carpet events. It was a nice distraction, says the mother. After the Madri's returned home, their, house, their homeowners association sent a letter to the landlord demanding their eviction because, among other reasons, Ava's social media venture had attracted an intruder into the community. Mm. In early August, she received messages from Venmo from a man calling her a baby girl and offering to pay $1,000 a month for her phone number. Her parents discovered that man's name matches that of a registered sex offender previously arrested for soliciting a 14-year-old girl. God. This just... Ugh. So her father said he was advised by the police that under Florida stand-your-ground law governing justifiable use of deadly force, he was not subject to prosecution. Yeah. But just to be safe, he contacted a lawyer to represent him. To represent him, and um, Michael Marino, an entertainment lawyer in New York, created an enterprise for Ava and signed an agreement with the Madres for a percentage of future revenues. This guy turned to a friend, Lanny Davis, a Washington lawyer and crisis manager, whose public relations firm is now representing Ava as well. The shooting continues to reverberate. The boy who received Justin's messages about his plans to attack Ava still attends high school with her. In December, Ava's parents told her that he was... In December, Ava told her parents he was following and watching her. The family visited the high school to report the matter last month. Another classmate sent her a video. A boy had made of himself firing a gun at a shooting Mm. range. Unnerved, Ava withdrew from the school this month and now attends class from home. She's still on social media with her parents' support. Um, the parents say they don't want to support or they don't want sick individuals to force Ava off the platform. Yeah. Why should we allow them to stop her? She's meant to bring awareness to all of this. She has not told her followers what happened. I don't want to go out negatively and people think I'm attra- I've attracted him. Her greater worry is that other troubled people will make it a contest to see who can get her first. I don't think I want to do this anymore, she said at one point. Most people would say the money is a big benefit, but it's the experience, she says. I got to go to L.A., the people that I met, just being able to make other people smile is what I like. The enjoyment of seeing the impact I made in other people's lives. I'd post a video at night, close my eyes, and in the morning it was exciting to see how many views I got. It's like Christmas every day because you see what you build. I think we just had to allow her to make a decision and sort of support her. I think it's going to help her heal. It sounds corny, but I don't know what else to do. Mm. Um, Yeah. This is wild. Yes. The whole meet social media influencers, the whole TikTok thing, the fact that very young children are allowed unfettered access to social media platforms where predators lurk everywhere. Well, yes. But on the one hand, you can't victim blame. These are kids using the internet for the purpose that the app was designed for. You know what I mean? But even after all of that, she still wants to be a part of it. It's bonkers to me. I think if my child had that issue, I would be done. I think I'm for sorry. me, like the biggest kind of like thing that got me was when you said like 
immediately after this happened, she got an email, her mom got an email from an agent. Like that's yeah. manipulative that's, and seems very it's gross very skeezy. And like, I understand talent agents have a job. They need to find new talent all the time, but like. It's almost like ambulance chasing. Yes, it's, that's exactly what it is. And that's, that to me is gross. Like I understand wanting your kid to be able to have a regular childhood and be on TikTok and this, that, and the other because their friends are and it's fun. And yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe they get really lucky and they make some money off of it. And I get that, but like, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I don't know how to raise a teenager in 2022. I mean, that's just, I'm so glad I don't have kids. It's just, there's so many crazy things out there yeah. today that could impact them in very negative ways. Yeah. It can't be easy. No. To raise a child. No. And I mean... Um, but I, I, I can conclusively say, though, that I would not allow my child to be on that platform if it resulted in somebody shooting our front door down and getting killed on our front doorstep. Yeah. I'd be done. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... I think that's Find another creative outlet. Join the drama club. The story <laughs> I was thinking of was much less intense, but a girl... I want to say she was, like, 18. I maybe 20. I don't think she was a minor, but I could be wrong about that. But she was doing, cause I think, cause I don't have TikTok. I don't really know how to use it, but I think a popular thing is like, you see somebody doing a dance and then like you film yourself doing that dance. And like, it's like a, anyway, she was filming herself in her living room doing a dance. And then like an intruder came into her home <gasps> while she no. was filming it. Yes. And so she was able to shut the door and like get him out and like immediately. And I don't think the intruder was like stalking her. I don't think it was related to her being on TikTok. I think it was just something that her TikTok captured. So that's the story wow. I thought you were going to say, but, um, no, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And scary. Yes. It seems like now more than ever, like some of these really heinous crimes are getting captured on. Mm -hmm. Well, because all we're doing Social is media. filming ourselves a hundred percent of the time. Like we're making ourselves our, into our own reality TV shows. Absolutely. It's what is that? The Truman show? Yeah. So he didn't know, right? He did not know. Yeah. I don't, that's wild. Yeah. Um, I, I wish her the best. I hope that she's safe and doesn't end up having another circumstance like that. Cause it seems like that would be a terrifying thing. And like, I don't know how you even like regulate this, but like your friends shouldn't be selling your info to random strangers on the internet. Like yeah. I understand like being like 12, 13 and not having the impulse control and not having the foresight to be like, Hey, this seems super dangerous, but like, come on. Yeah. I, I baffled. Yeah. Blown away. Crazy. Some interesting cases, right? Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and wrap it up for the night. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, let's we gotta end on that one. I mean <laughs> if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail .com. Um, share a story with us, direct us to something you've seen that you want us to cover. We're we're cool, we're cool with that too. Social media, Darcy? Yeah, we are at the BFD Podcast on Instagram. So a lot of new stories. We're stores. not on TikTok. No, we we're not do on TikTok. Don't know how to use it. Um, <laughs> I don't even do the Instagram. Sarah does the Instagram because I'm terrible at doing Not on Snapchat. Instagram. Not on any of that um, stuff. So. But yeah, we covered a lot of new stories. So there's going to be lots of pictures to, to go through for this one. We don't have any booty shots or feet shots either. So Absolutely guess, not. Know. Creepers, beware. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's not funny. I shouldn't laugh at that. I really shouldn't. No. I apologize. I'm not trying to, to make light of that. That's just pretty serious stuff. Yeah. But please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. 
Bye. Bye, guys.